Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. So on 29th November, Sakir Starmer, the leader of the British Labour Party, undertook, or some might say resumed, a reshuffle of shadow cabinet positions in the Union Parliament. Whether this was a planned refresh post-conference or just the completion of the aborted and widely perceived as botched reshuffle earlier in the year is a question for debate. What can be said is that it was a bad day for the Welsh PLP, another bad day for the leader-deputy leader relations and the soft left and left-leaning members of the Labour parties of England, Scotland and Wales. The upsides are somewhat less clear. Fortunately, here at Hiraith, we have an expert on Labour Party politics with us. So we're going to be firing some questions at Matt. Hi, Rich. So, Matt, was this the reshuffle that Starmer wanted to do back in May when he tried to demote Angela Rayner and make a whole raft of changes and it all went terribly wrong? Or is this a whole new reshuffle for this moment in time? Uh, I think it's a little of column A and a little of column B. Uh, I think that the reshuffle that he tried to do before and sort of botched, um, one where he tried to reduce the amount of people in the shadow cabinet and as a consequence, reduce the amount of spads that we have backing up the shadow cabinet because we are broke as a political party, was failed. It was botched because he couldn't get the first move past Angela Rayner. I think there are certain people in this reshuffle that wouldn't have been promoted in the previous one so i don't know whether everyone would find it a little bit helpful to just give a sort of overview of what happened rich so yvette cooper has become shadow home secretary replacing nick thomas simmons who now goes to international trade uh, david lammy has become shadow foreign secretary replacing lisa nandy who has gone to leveling up wes streeting has become shadow health secretary replacing jonathan ashworth who goes through the dwp Bridget Phillipson has gone to Shadow Education, replacing Kate Green. Peter Kyle has gone to Shadow Northern Ireland, replacing Lou Haig, who has gone to Transport. Pat McFadden is now Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Steve Reid is now Shadow Justice Secretary, who replaces David Lammy. Joe Stevens is Shadow Wales, who replaces Nia Griffith. Lucy Powell has become Shadow Culture, who replaces Joe Stevens. Jonathan Reynolds has become Shadow Business, taking some of the responsibilities Ed Miliband used to have in his role. Ed Miliband is now Shadow Climate Change and Net Zero Secretary, a job that doesn't exist, but we won't get into why Labour creates jobs that don't have an equivalent in government. Uh, as I said, Lou Haig, now Transport. Emily Thornbury has become Shadow Attorney General when she was Shadow International Trade. And Jim McMahon has gone from Transport to being Shadow DEFRA. And surprise our audience, who's uh, Shadow, Scotland sec- <laughs> Shadow Scotland Secretary now? Uh, Ian Murray. It was a I shock, mean, isn't it? <laughs> well, during the Corbyn years, we definitely had people in Shadow Scotland Secretary who weren't Scottish MPs. But I think that Keir has decided that he's going to use the benefit of having his only uh, Scottish MP be his Shadow Scotland Secretary. Of course, backed up by Ogmore's MP, Chris Elmore, as the Deputy Minister in that team. Obviously. So, Obviously. You, so you mentioned then that they, there are a number of people that got promoted this time that maybe wouldn't have been promoted in May, maybe because their their trajectory, their political trajectory wasn't quite right or their experience wasn't quite right. Who do you think falls into that camp of the list that you've just read out? Uh, I don't know whether Yvette Cooper was ready to come back at that point. I think there was an attempt made to, to get her to come back into the fold at that point, and I don't think it worked. And this is why we've now got this situation where Yvette has come back, leaving the chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee now vacant. 
I mean, a lot of these are sort of sideways moves. A lot of them could have been done at the time. If you think of things like John Ashworth going to DGP. That surprised me. I thought he'd been one of the better, you know, uh, performers in the previous Shadow Cabinet because, uh, you know, quite quite frankly, there wasn't much competition in that particular regard. But he did at least seem to master his brief and he was quite a good media performer for, uh, for the Labour Party. Surprised me that they moved him, but I guess that's, you know, what happens when you need to get new rising stars like Wes Streeting and <laughs> uh, Bridget Phillipson into... Uh, into the shadow cabinet. Um, do you think? Do you think that this has all been helped in a way by Boris Johnson? Perhaps I was thinking that the sticking point for me before, when I was thinking about the previous reshuffle, was Lisa Nandy, who I think is too important, has too much of a constituency as a former leadership con contender for the Labour Party, someone who has an awful lot of support, represents a very key kind of constituency in the north of England. I think almost Boris maybe helped Kia out by creating this weird department of levelling up out of the local government department, because that kind of feels just about important enough so that going from foreign secretary to you know, shadow secretary of state for levelling up, I can barely even say it with a straight face. It just feels like there's not much many other places where she could go. Yeah, and a very interesting point made by Stephen Bush on the New Statesman podcast uh, about this reshuffle was that shadow foreign secretary is essentially... Uh, shadow minister for going on the telly because shadow foreign policy is decided by the leader of the party. Um, shadow levelling up seems like a very good place for Lisa Nandy to be. You know, she can talk about her work on improving the prospects of towns and uh, and is now shadowing Michael Gove. And she seems like a very good opponent for someone like Michael Gove at the dispatch box, who is, you know, for his many criticisms is is very good performer in the dispatch box so someone like lisa is a is a very good opponent there and yeah i think that if it had just been a move to sort of communities housing and local government it wouldn't have felt as important it would have felt like a very significant demotion one that i think has actually not been talked about a huge amount by uh by the the media is is how much of a demotion that is but she seems still quite happy to be around the big table Mm, absolutely. So while we're on the subject of quoting former or very nearly former New Statesman journalists, uh, let's lean into Patrick Maguire's now uh, infamous tweet that Joe Stevens has been demoted to Wales. It was a bad reshuffle for members of the Welsh PLP, wasn't it? Including, of course, not only Nick Thomas-Simmons, but also for the rather entertainingly nicknamed, we discover, NATO Nia, Nia Griffiths, who was the previous sh Shadow Secretary of State for Wales, but also former Shadow Defence Secretary, and uh, where she did profess her love for NATO on a regular basis, much to the disgruntlement of the Corbyn flavour of Labour that was uh, in, in the ascendancy at the time. Um, was, it, was it really that bad for the Welsh PLP? And what does the role of Shadow Secretary of State for Wales have in store for Cardiff Central MP Joe Stevens? Well, I was thinking, Rich, the only real question of this reshuffle is whether Keir seems to dislike the left of the party more or less than he dislikes the Welsh part of the PLP. So Nick was obviously demoted from Shadow Home Secretary. He had, uh, for all his many, many qualities uh, as, as a thinker, as a speaker, as a politician, he hadn't performed very well in that role. Joe... Yes, it's very interesting to see whether that is a demotion, isn't it, really? And I think that massively depends on what you think you can do with that role as Shadow Wales Secretary. 
I mean, it, it will give her a significantly larger role within the party in Wales. She's very close to Keir. It could be a very good move for Wales uh, for Welsh Labour's influence within the UK party. She's a much more dynamic figure than Nia. I, I think it could be good for the for the Welsh PLP to have someone like Joe in charge. With regards to Nia being sacked from the shadow cabinet, I mean, Nia is an incredibly loyal foot soldier. I mean, Nia is not pro-Trident, but in her role as shadow defence secretary, had to toe the party line on that, which now has her being nicknamed Nuclear Nia or NATO Nia. I mean, I'm not sure I'll be on NATO. She may well be a a fan of NATO. But she was just a, a loyal member of the shadow cabinet who didn't want to break collective responsibility at a time when everyone was sort of nod, nod, wink, winking to Labour's anti-NATO, anti-nuclear policy position. That wasn't actually the policy position. So she just did what every member of the Shadow Cabinet should have done, really. Just on, just thinking back to that Shadow Secretary of State question, um, and we know this from having recently recorded, though not yet published tellingly, um, a whole series of interviews about the St David's Day Agreement, The Labour Party used to be in the same position as the Conservative Party is today, where whether shadow or government position, the Secretary of State role always outranked the leader of the respective Senate groups. In the Labour Party side now, that has been well and truly settled. There's no doubting that um, the First Minister of Wales or the leader of Welsh Labour in the Senate outranks the shadow Secretary of State or Secretary of State if they're Labour in Wales, uh, not the case in the Conservatives, but does this mean that the role is, as many people in the Senate seem to believe, superfluous? And is 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 one of the acts of the next Labour government going to be to abolish the Secretary of State role for the territorial offices? Yeah, it's a very interesting question, that, isn't it? How do you operate when a large amount of your Senate colleagues want your prospective role to be abolished? I think that the major issue for Labour, if they wanted to abolish the territorial offices, which I I don't think they do, is that does leave you open to accusations from nationalist parties that you no longer care about those areas. So I don't think they'll be doing that, especially with the way that Keir Starmer would probably use someone like Ian Murray in government. Does it mean, though, we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about the Conservative Party um, in government, Um, And generally, with regards to the UK government, um, I think when we did our Unionists and the Union in Trouble episode um, last year, do you get the impression from the way that both the Conservative benches are composed and also now the shadow benches in the Labour Party are composed, it looks increasingly difficult that someone from Wales or Scotland would be able to hold one of the major ministries of state and or be Prime Minister? Oh, I don't think we'll ever see a Welsh or Scottish Prime Minister ever again. Not one that holds a seat in Wales or Scotland, anyway. Because I think that there would be too much of a narrative from the UK press that they weren't suitable. And you saw with Kinnock the way that he was constantly undermined. And I think in a post-devolution political landscape, i.e. one where realistically a Welsh or Scottish Labour MP, Labour MP, who became leader of the opposition, who became potentially prime minister, wouldn't be able to, or would be taking decisions for a country they don't represent in, in the health service, in terms of education, in terms of huge heaps of government spending. So if you look at it from that media aspect, 
where I think that someone from Wales or Scotland would be either undermined or belittled because of their status as being a Welsh or Scottish MP. That's one thing. But then there's also the fact that they would be taking decisions on something that didn't matter to them. I think this is, of course, a clear contrast to people like Liam Fox, for example, who is a, a Scottish MP, but represents an English constituency. Yeah, similarly, Robert Buckland recently in, in government and uh, yeah, Michael Gove, etc. Do you think the parties have internalised that then when they do these reshuffles? or Because or, it's not being said explicitly, obviously, for you know obvious reasons. But at the same time, they seem to be internally just making these decisions as leadership teams that they're just not going to risk it. Um, and I wonder what that means potentially for the future career paths of you know, aspiring, let's, let's be honest about it, there are a number of Labour MPs in particular from Wales who aspire to be government ministers, uh, if not prime minister. But the path to that, while they continue to represent a Welsh constituency, seems pretty tricky, if not impossible. I think it's important to be very clear about this, though, Rich, that this is a, a reshuffle that feels like it's been designed by the blue ticks on Twitter. It's about who does the press think are the best communicators? That's why you've got people like Yvette Cooper in the top jobs. And I, and I think that it's not really a question of talent, I don't think, with the Welsh PLP and, the, and their, their positions within the shadow cabinet in, at a Westminster level, because they're just not high profile enough. The only high profile Welsh Labour MP that is not in this shadow cabinet is Chris Bryant, really. Anyone else with any real clout is there. And if you were thinking about your particular your prospects of being a minister in government, for example, if that's what you really cared about, you'd try and become an MS, wouldn't you, if you were a Labour Party politician, because the chances of being in government are far higher. Um, and, you know, some cynics may say that we've already seen people who have been previously MPs look at the prospects of Labour in Westminster and decided to move down to the Senate because it increased their chances of being a member of a government. Yeah, or likewise Manchester, of course, elsewhere. Of course. Uh, you're absolutely right, though, about Chris Bryant. He's an interesting outlier, of course, because what he really obviously wants to is the speakership of the House. And um, uh, he seems to be carving out a niche for himself, but he's never going to be in government. In, even if there was a Labour government, he wouldn't be a, a minister appointee for anything, would he, in all likelihood? I... I don't dare go into the mind of Keir Starmer, sadly, Rich. So you mentioned this earlier, Matt. So the left of the party might not be feeling particularly great about this reshuffle. Uh, and you also mentioned then, which is becoming the dominant, I think, kind of uh, journalistic analysis of this reshuffle, that Keir was rewarding people who have cut through, um, if we can use that rather gross phrase. So is this a reshuffle to make the shadow front bench more aligned with the, what you would perceive as the central right of the Labour Party? Or is this a reshuffle to try and bring people in who have that mystical cut-through quality? Uh, I would consider this a blundered consolidation of power by the Labour right, um, which is somehow equally disastrous and irrelevant in a way that only Keir Starmer can really master. So there's been a significant increase of people on the right of the party in senior positions. So key members of the Labour right, people like Wes Streeting, Peter Kyle, Pat McFadden, 
being promoted to quite senior jobs. There's also another, there's significant wing, wins, sorry, for people like Rachel Reeves by taking part of Ed Miliband's job off him, uh, taking the business uh, aspect of his title means that they can stop him talking about the nationalization of uh, key industries, etc. So things like that are very clearly, it's very clear why they've done things like that in order, and uh, it very much suits the economic narrative that Keir is trying to create. It certainly suits the way that Rachel Reeves wants to operate. I, that, that to me is, 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 is pretty obviously uh, what happened here. The thing about that, and I think this is the something that what we've had in a way, I think about the last few years is that Labour has tried a whole variety of different things against quite a shifting target in terms of political opposition in Westminster. So obviously there was the kind of soft left uh, Miliband led rejection of new Labour and that obviously didn't work against David Cameron. Then there was uh, the, the Corbyn experiment, uh, if you can put it in, in those terms, and that, that managed to lose twice, once obviously against a pretty awful, um, in, in electorally against a pretty awful um, campaign and leader in the form of Theresa May, but it did better than expected. And then it did exactly as expected against a, you know, a far more potent campaign as led by Boris Johnson. And now there's Keir Starmer there. And, and I wonder if, you know, much as the left of the party might feel that this is a betrayal or a kind of straying from a successful um or some of the successful shoots of the Corbyn period maybe the reality is that to win in England which is where Starmer needs to win you need to be a different party you know you need to be a more of a centre centre-right party because the only in in my lifetime the only Labour party that has ever won in England has been the Blair party the party of Blair and New Labour uh, and maybe that's just a recognition of the, you know, the hard truth that Scotland appears to be largely gone and out of reach for Labour. Wales still con- continues to support Labour, although with a different flavour. And, the, you know, where, where Starmer has to win is, is England. And maybe the kind of centre centrist approach is, you know, maybe where the electorate is in England. What other routes are there? When stuff like this is asked, Rich, I'm reminded of two great Labour lefties. So there's an, and I'm going to butcher these quotes, but Tony Benn always said that Labour is like a bird. It needs two wings to fly. It needs both wings to fly. And then Roger Morgan once asked, do one-legged ducks swim in circles? Well, at the moment, the Labour Party feels sort of like a one-winged crow flapping about, but not really moving anywhere. You ask whether this right or sort of centrist, uh, centre-right, version of the Labour Party is a better electoral prospect. But the reality is that yesterday, Sharon Graham, the General Secretary of the Unite Trade Union, said that the Unite would be cutting its political funding for the Labour Party. And to put that amount of money into context, Rich, in 2019-20, Unite gave £7 million to the Labour Party. Now, that is a significant dent to any electoral war chest if they don't have that money, if they lose the backing of the trade unions, you know, I don't care what your policies are, you're not going to have the money to fight the election. Now, maybe they'll start getting support from business now, but I think that things like losing the backing of Unite are so important to the mentality of the party. Not only are the trade unions the, the bank of the Labour Party, 
the Labour Party exists to facilitate trade unionism. It's not the other way around. The Labour Party was formed by trade unions. And to see the trade unions move so, so rapidly and so powerfully away from the Labour Party like this, it's really worrying, not only from a financial perspective, but from a moral one too. So this kind of really gets to the, the, the kind of core of the matter for me. And I think we all saw this both in this reshuffle and much more notably in the previous one. Isn't that that two wings analogy exactly what the whole point of having a leader and a deputy leader is about? When Blair was leader, Blair was the modernising, more centrist, more pro-business wing. And then <laughs> we had John Prescott, who was the you know, left-leaning, you know, uh, rabble-rousing, punch you in the face if you throw an egg at me um, kind of trade unionist wing. And, and, and between them, they managed to keep the birds more or less in the air. In fact, they took it, you know, higher than pretty much any Labour uh, party has been on this island for decades. However, at the moment, we've got this terrible, apparently terrible situation where you have someone who very clearly comes from a hinterland that would appeal to the left of the Labour Party in Angela Rayner, in the deputy leadership role. And if that relationship was harmonious with Kia, you would have thought that they'd be able to, you know, she would be able to appeal to one major constituency and he would be able to appeal to the other. But he seems to be doing everything possible to kind of demoralise her, uh, undermine her. And um, because of the, you know, the timing of these reshuffles, you know, widely perceived the first one was to try and pin to sort of pin some of the blame for the loss of Hartlepool on her. And this one, the reshuffle was timed apparently to coincide with a major speech, although I think that's kind of slightly oversold in the coverage. But if they could fix that remedy, that relationship, then wouldn't that be the winning thing? And, and why is it they're not able to do that? Very interesting you say that Angela is Keir's, uh, Angela is John Prescott, uh, Keir Starmer's Tony Blair. For... I think for the I think the record will show that's not what I said. <laughs> I was drawing a loose analogy, but oh, a loose what... analogy. Uh, let me draw a loose analogy. I mean, for all his many many flaws, Keir Starmer is not Tony Blair. Tony Blair was an exceptional communicator who you know had his hand on the concept of what the UK wanted politically. And I'm you know it doesn't take a great oracle to see that's not quite where Keir Starmer is now. To me, I think that Keir has taken every opportunity to sideline Angela because he's fearful of a challenge from Angela because if she'd run for leader when he did, she'd have won. And to so, me, I think that explains so much of, 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 of why he acts the way he does to Angela. Is it, is it kind of like, a, it's almost an acknowledgement that he, he knows he's in a weak position and that he doesn't command the respect of his party in a way that perhaps some of his predecessors have? Well, you know, he won that leadership election uh, on the first round. He, he absolutely has a mandate to lead. And I'm of the opinion that it was wrong to challenge Jeremy Corbyn for the leadership of the, of the Labour Party at the time where it was done. Which, so time, I'm, was, I'm which not, time it was done, Matt? The, the 2016 <laughs> time, just after the referendum. I think that was the wrong thing to do. And I'm not advocating anybody else challenging Keir Starmer. But I... I do think that if he was challenged, it would be a much harder time for him now. And look, I think the membership of the Labour Party has drastically changed since his election. I think there are fewer people on the left of the Labour Party, sorry, who would have been on the left of the Labour Party who are now still members of the Labour Party. I think that is obvious. But I think it's very important to note that 
the average Labour Party member is to the left of this shadow cabinet and will not be very happy if they pay attention at all with the makeup of this shadow cabinet. If Keir, it feels to me like Keir is taking a calculated gamble that people on the left will vote for Labour at the next general election uh, no matter what. And that's a very big gamble, especially with things like the climate crisis raging on, people's focus on that. I think you could see an awful lot of, and I'm not advocating this, by the way, I think you could see a, a significant amount of people say, I'm not bothering with Labour next time. I, I'll either stay at home or I'll vote for a, a small party on the left. And they, they won't win because they'll need everybody to come together. Their voter coalition needs to be as broad as possible. And I'm not advocating that that needs to be uh, coming straight from the left like Jeremy Corbyn did, which obviously didn't work. Uh, and I'm not talking about being on the right either, because I think that the best way that Labour wins is by keeping that coalition together. And you don't keep the coalition together by, by what, doing what it feels like is deliberately winding one side up. And that's what it feels like Keir Starmer is doing at the moment. So just leading into final thoughts now, I was just thinking to myself, obviously, the last question that I had, which I think I may have picked up on your your answer to it, but I'll ask it anyway. Does this reshuffle leave the Labour Party in a good place to fight the 2023 or 24 general election? And will Starmer ever be uh, Prime Minister of the UK? Events, dear boy, events. Who knows where Labour will be in May 2023 with the next general election is likely to happen. It's very, very difficult to say, because you could make a very good argument to say that this shadow cabinet puts you in a much better media, media position in terms of taking the fight to the Tories on policy, etc., on narrative. But if the relationship between Keir and the left, Keir and the trade unions continues to sour, then we would really struggle to find an election because you just won't have the money to do it. And you need, like I said, as broad a coalition as possible. You need people energized and enthused to vote for you. And I don't get the impression that people are hopeful. And I don't get the impression that people feel like Keir can win. And even people I know who voted for Keir whenever that leadership election was it feels like it's been years and simultaneously a couple of weeks whenever that was they're not impressed with him either he he hasn't been able to grasp the narrative to, to command the attention of the british people so to me it's very hard to see keir starmer ever coming becoming prime minister but but who knows really I'm going to ask a very quick one. Do you think that he has an ideology? Because, you know, Blair had an ideology. Corbyn obviously had an ideology. Miliband was, you know, had a pretty identifiable ideology, but it's very difficult to pin Starmer down, isn't it? I think, that, now, don't get me wrong, I think he has politics. I think he has a clear set of values and ideas and policies he would like to implement. I think he lacks a lot of uh, the political manoeuvrability skills of other former Labour leaders, because he's not been in it as long. He's, he's quite green to politics, really, um, although he's been involved in politics his entire life. He's, he, he hadn't, until the last five or so years, been heavily involved in the sort of top level of how to operate in politics. One concern I do have is statements that he's made saying he would break promises to become electable. And I think we've clearly seen 
that from the pledges he made to become leader of the Labour Party, he's been happy to break them uh, when it is advantageous. Um, like I discussed earlier, things on common ownership, basically telling Ed Miliband to shut up about nationalisation. So I, he's the leader of the, of the Labour Party. Of course he has politics, but whether he has the determination to see those put in place, that's a much bigger question for a very different day. Well, if people haven't had enough uh, over this uh, short pod of your grumpy trade unionist complaints about Keir Starmer, uh, where can they find you on Twitter, Matt? They can find me at Hexter101, H-E-X-T-E-R-101. Great. And um, uh, you can find more from Hiraith uh, at Hiraith Blog Cymru on Medium and Facebook and at Hiraith Blog on Twitter. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.